That was the experience. Those are the words of of St. Augustine. Now, what could make such a learned individual, and if you know anything about this saint, you know that he was a professor, that he was someone who was trained in classical literature and in the classics. What could make him uh, so tumultuous within? What could stir his soul to the point of being so vexed that he longed for the privacy of a garden where he could be alone with God and cry out in his agony and in his turmoil? It was because he had reached a point in his own life that he realized that he was sick. He realized that he was in need of a physician, that he was in need of a doctor. And in a very similar way, Matthew begins here in this uh, uh, context of our, of our text that we read, he begins by, uh, in a very humble and subtle way, describing his encounter with Christ. He states that as Jesus passed on, there was a man called Matthew, and he refers to himself in the third person, a man called Matthew, and of course he it is who's writing this gospel, and he conveys how that he was sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed Jesus. The more that I pondered and the more that I prayerfully considered this text this past week, the more I realized that at the heart of what Matthew is articulating, at the heart of what he is endeavoring to express to the audience of his gospel, is that he was a sick man. He was somebody that was an outcast socially, an outcast religiously, an outcast uh, politically, and yet Christ called him. And so as I delved into this, this text, I, uh, there are four different ways that I want to uh, break up, I believe, the heart of the message that Matthew is trying to convey. And the first is, and it's point one there in the bulletin, that Christ calls the helpless. So Matthew, he just simply states without giving us much detail that he was a tax collector and that he was sitting at the tax booth. Now, I'm sure most of you, if you've heard the gospel preached at all, or if you've been around Christian circles or been around the church, you know that tax collectors and publicans were not favorably thought of in the days of Christ. And there were several reasons why. One, uh, because they usually were dishonest people. The Roman Empire, which in and of itself was a usurper to the throne, the, the uh, supplanter of the theocratic form of government there in Judea, there in Israel, uh, they exacted a tax on all goods, on all produce, on all agricultural fare that uh, was harvested in the kingdom. And the tax collectors were free not only to collect that tax, which it was a certain percentage mandated by uh, the Roman government, but they could also collect, in addition to that tax, a little something for themselves. And so often tax collectors became rather wealthy because they exacted an exuberant amount praying on the poor and praying on those in their community. So they were not thought favorably of because they usually were dishonest. But they were also considered disfavorably because they were uh, politically outcast. Israel at this time, Judah, Galilee, was under the authority of the Roman government. And Rome was seen as the enemy. Therefore, anyone who fraternized or anyone who had dealings with Rome was considered to be the enemy as well. And tax collectors represented to the locals, they were a daily reminder, a constant reminder 
that they were not free. They were a constant reminder that they were subjects of a foreign dictator, a foreign empire. And so if you were a, a political diehard, if you were a zealot, which there were some of those in the crowd that day, uh, then you would have looked at Matthew and you would have seen the enemy in his face. But they were also outcasts for other reasons. They were uh, not accepted religiously. In fact, there was a rabbinic ban on all tax collectors. They were not allowed to enter the synagogue. They were not allowed to be given forgiveness of their sins. There was no uh, way of repentance for, uh, for a tax collector under this rabbinic ban. It was placed on them. They were considered, uh, it wasn't impossible for them to repent, but it was considered of great difficulty for them to do so. They were forbidden to serve as judges or witnesses in legal matters because their word was considered to be untrustworthy. And so they were hated, they were despised. Christ sees Matthew and he simply tells him an imperative command. He says, follow me. Matthew rises and he follows Christ. And in the words of Luke's gospel, Luke also uh, gives us a detailed account of this call. And in the words of Luke's gospel in chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, he says that Matthew arose leaving everything. It is likely that Matthew had heard Christ teach before. In fact, Christ was no stranger to Capernaum, which is where they were. He was no stranger to the Galilee area. So it is highly likely that Matthew had seen the miracles, had heard the teaching of Christ, and had believed prior to this point but he had not yet been called as a disciple. And so immediately, whenever Christ calls him, his response is spontaneous, it's immediate. He leaves his former occupation and he follows this itinerant preacher. Now, one point that I want to emphasize is that Matthew was helpless by every stretch of the word, by every stretch of the imagination. He was unacceptable religiously. He was unacceptable socially, and he was unacceptable politically, and yet Christ calls him. The Apostle Paul later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, he addresses the fact that Christ does not call those who can help themselves, as is the uh, cliche that you and I have heard before, God helps those who can help themselves. That is counterintuitive to the gospel. Christ reminds us, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of Christ, because he has chosen the helpless, you are in him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, whenever we examine the call to Matthew, the call of Matthew, whenever we examine the fact that Christ looks at him and says, follow me, 
think there is a, a deep lesson, a profound lesson uh, that we should pause and consider. And it should make us all uncomfortable. It should make us all squirm a bit because Matthew would have fit the profile given the various demographics, the various individuals uh, present at the party, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Matthew would have fit the profile of being noticeably helpless, especially if you were a religious Jew, especially if you were someone who was trying to uh, pursue the Torah, trying to pursue the law of God in obedience to him. You would not have wanted to, uh, to be seen with a tax collector, with a publican, with a sinner. In fact, a tax collector and a sinner in the eyes of the religious elite were synonymous. So when we hear Christ call Matthew, what we need to hear him, uh, who, who we need to hear him call is someone who is helpless, not someone who can help themselves, not someone uh, who simply uh, made it halfway and Christ reached across a, a chasm and brought him the remainder of the way. No, we see a man who is helpless. And it is exactly these type of people that Christ calls. Christ calls the helpless. Now there's an application that we can make from this, which I want to make discreetly but yet boldly. And that is that I think we should first pause and consider the people in our own lives, in our own sphere of influence, who are the noticeably, the, the undeniably helpless. Matthew would have fit that profile. Think of the people perhaps that you work with, maybe the people in your own household, maybe the person next door. Maybe it's that extremely liberal-minded individual that constantly says something that just gets under your skin. Maybe it's the rainbow flag-waving crowd. Maybe it's the children of illegal immigrants. Maybe it's illegal immigrants. Picture in your mind those individuals that you think are noticeably, visually helpless. People that you would classify as being not only politically unfavorable, but spiritually unfavorable and socially unfavorable. Social piranhas. People with whom we would not like to associate. And the reason I want you to think of them is because that's how Matthew would have been portrayed. That's how he would have been seen. That's how he would have been comprehended by the multitudes in this day. This brings me to the second point. Christ did not simply call Matthew and say, follow me and leave it at that. It's interesting that Christ brings Matthew. After Christ tells Matthew to follow me, he brings him home. He brings him to Matthew's house. Now you would expect it to be the other way around, but Christ goes to Matthew's home. Why? Because ultimately what we see in this story is that Christ not only calls the helpless, but also that he helps the called, those whom he calls. He does not observe from afar. He does not keep Matthew at arm's length. He's not content simply to have a, a, a social media debate about the predicament that Matthew is in. Instead, he invades the real life world of Matthew and he enters his home. Now we know that this house is Matthew's house because Luke tells us as much in Luke chapter 5 verse 29. It says, And Levi, also Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. So even though Christ calls Matthew, Matthew invites Christ to his home. And it's there that 
Christ really gets his hands dirty. And he reveals the fact that he is not a physician who is afraid of, of, of the sick. He is not someone who is content with just addressing the issue of mankind's situation, mankind's lostness. He is not content with addressing our sin from the marbled, studded balcony of heaven. But rather, he took on himself, as John reminds us in his gospel, flesh. The word which is eternal, which is the same as God, which is equal with God, which was from the very beginning, was made flesh. And it's this word incarnate that not only invaded our miserable, meager existence, but also invited Matthew to follow him and then invaded the privacy, the intimacy of Matthew's home. And it's here that we see the great physician working on the heart of the helpless. It's here that we see Christ helping those whom he has called, helping this man whom he signaled out and said, follow me. It's here that we see Christ doing what he has come to do. And it's also here that we witness the way that he has scorned for doing so. We see in verse 10 that Christ reclined at the table in the house and behold many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And so the Pharisees, being good Jews, being good religious people, asked the disciples, not Christ, but they asked his followers, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Interestingly enough, Christ does not let them reply. He replies. He overhears the question. He hears it is laden with discord and discontent. He hears that it is laden with a sense of self-righteousness where they see themselves as not needing help and Matthew as clearly, visibly, undeniably needing help. And they just question whether Christ should be the one helping him. It's okay as long as Christ is teaching sinners. It's okay as long as Christ is proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom to those who are outcasts. But when Christ enters the home of this social pariah, when he enters the home of this man who represents everything that a good Jew has come to hate, Rome, dishonesty, violation of the law of God, it's then that they say, how could you? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Christ answers the question. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And in this reply, we see two remarkable things. One, that Christ is willing to do what it takes to save sinners. We see that Christ in his coming, as Dan Doriani in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew so beautifully said, that Jesus, when he came, did not come to earth to write A-plus on the moral report cards of good little boys and girls. He came for the sick. He came for the helpless. He came for those who are lost. And so he tells the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. The purpose for the incarnate Christ is to live a life of perfect obedience and to die the death that all of us so justly deserve and to be made like us, to sympathize with our infirmity. God the Son was made flesh 
and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He lived with us so that he could heal us, so that he could save us. Secondly, Christ did not fellowship with sinners in the sense of a bird of a feather flocking together. He was not condoning their sinful lifestyle. He was not condoning the things that Matthew did wrong. But he was noticeably something different. He was not the sick comforting the sick. He was a physician, the physician among the sick. He was not tainted by their sin, but he was able to offer them the remedy that was so desperately needed. Christ first offers love, a loving acceptance. And we see this not only in how he relates to Matthew, but also in how he relates to you and I. That he first offers a loving acceptance and then loving transformation. Because we would be mistaken if we think that Christ called Matthew and expected the status quo. We would be mistaken if we thought that he called Matthew and simply condoned his lifestyle and encouraged him to continue in the manner in which he was living. No, he accepted him for the sake of healing him, to transform him. His love was not only an acceptance love, but also it was a transforming love. And this is explicit in how he responds to the Pharisees when he says, those who are sick are the ones who need a physician. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, first let me say that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We have the responsibility as Christians, as those who follow Christ, of being the hands and the feet of Christ in the world that we live in. But we must never forget that we are not the great physician. There is only one physician. We are all sick people trying to help other sick people. And so that automatically means that whenever we fellowship with those who do not believe, that the fellowship should be, the extent of that fellowship should be to the degree to which we um, are able to share and represent Christ, the true physician, with them. It's important that we are not led astray seeking to befriend the world for the sake of befriending the world. Our call is not to see how close to the edge that we can get without falling off. Our call is to pursue pure religion. Our call is to represent the great physician at the same time. That's why James in his epistle said that pure religion is keeping oneself unstained from the world. But then uh, Paul in Philippians 2.15 says that we are to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as stars. We are to shine as lights in the world. Now, before I go to my third point, let me ask you the question. We've already seen that Christ helps those whom he calls and that Christ calls the helpless. Let me ask you, who are the others in your life? Because essentially, when we try to put a face to those who are helpless, our first response is to think of those who generally, generally need our or need help. We may think of those who are sick or those who are uh, struggling in some way. I don't know if you ever watched the movie Lost. Um, I have often threatened to form a support group for all of us who 
were just completely um, traumatized by the fact that the show ended with so many unanswered questions. Um, but there was one group of people in particular in Lost that were always called the Others. And if you, you're not familiar with the show, then please bear with me for a moment. But there was a group of people in this series that were called the Others. They were people on the island, and sometimes you saw them, sometimes you didn't. But sometimes there were people that looked familiar, and sometimes they weren't. But by the end of the last season, what you realize in frustration, because you, you know, the, the, the show never really tells you who the others are, but you begin to realize that the others are populated by the community of all those people who crashed on the island that continues to dwindle down to just a handful of people. And before long, when you see the others, you start seeing everyone who crashed on the island. And then at the very end, you think that the last character actually becomes one of the others. The point I'm making is that whenever we think of those who are helpless, it is our tendency to think in terms of us and them, to think in terms of the others, those who need help. But a point that Christ makes, which we'll look closer at here in just a moment, is that ultimately we are all the others. So Christ calls the helpless and he helps the called. Now, the third point that I want to make is that Christ wants a bride, not a mistress. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at how Christ responds to the Pharisees, not only does he say that um, those who are well have no need of a physician, but then he gets to this little sentence, this little phrase at the end of our text, which is really profound and it's telling for more ways than one, uh, for more reasons than one. Uh, but at first blush, at first glance, it's hard to understand. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then in verse 13, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting uh, particularly from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Hosea said in uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 6, he says, for I, and he's quoting, of course, uh, Hosea is, is um, representing God. He's the mouthpiece of the Lord to Israel, the northern kingdom. And he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, just to give you a little background, in order for us to understand Christ's statement or the reason that Christ quoted Hosea, we have to go back and understand a bit about Hosea and the world in which he lived. Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom in Israel. And he prophesied during a period of time in which Israel uh, was very religious. They went to synagogue. They went to church every Sunday, if you will. They were very particular about offering to God the offerings that he required in the law. They were very particular about observing the Sabbath and doing everything that God commanded. But their hearts were far from him. And so God tells them, in fact, he compares his relationship with them uh, by, by telling Hosea that he is to marry a prostitute. And he compares the relationship between God and Israel and Hosea and his unfaithful wife. And so it's in this context of this comparison that he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, if you were to look up in Hebrew the uh, term steadfast love. Steadfast love is a, a term that uh, the translators of the English Bible uh, have settled on, but really it, the Hebrew word is the Hebrew word chesed. And 
Um, that will be familiar to some of you, but the Hebrew word chesed really is difficult to translate into English because it means more than just simply mercy. It means more than love. It means more, it has a connotation which is much deeper than a simple English word. It refers to the unconditional love of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And it is this love to which God, through Hosea, appeals to his people Israel when he says, I would rather have steadfast love. I desire this covenantal fidelity, this covenantal uh, faithful love and the knowledge of God rather than your burnt offerings. In other words, what he was saying, and we know this, and I'm summarizing Genesis through Revelation. We know this because ultimately the covenantal purpose of God throughout history, throughout biblical history, is to have a relationship with you and I. Is to have a relationship with his people all for the sake of his glory. And so what God is, is telling his people Israel there in Hosea's prophecy is that he desires to have a covenantal relationship with them. More so than an outward display of obedience. Then you fast forward several hundred years to the time of Christ and you hear that in his response to the Pharisees, he quotes Hosea chapter six, verse six. And you realize that what he is communicating would not have been lost on them. They would have heard him loud and clear even though uh, the, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, Known as the Septuagint, uh, some of the meaning was lost, but these religious leaders of the day would have understood exactly what Christ was saying. He was saying, I desire to have a relationship more than I desire an outward display of religion. I desire a covenantal fidelity and not sacrifice. So to reread Christ's statement in light of the Old Testament, we can see that what he desires is summed up in the English word grace instead of the rigidity of the sacrificial system, which is void of relationship. In other words, he's not looking for a mistress. He's not looking for lip service on Sunday and then a heart that is far from him Monday through Saturday. He wants a bride. But the extent to which he's willing to go to obtain that bride is demonstrated in the call of Matthew when he calls the helpless and then he helps the called and then he responds to those who criticize by saying, what I desire is relationship, mercy, covenantal faithfulness instead of sacrifice. How does God demonstrate this covenantal love to you and I? Well, for one, he demonstrates it in the very sending of his son, as John tells us in John 3:16, for God so loved that he gave. And when did Christ come? When did he die for us? Well, as Paul says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies. And even though Matthew in his humility does not elaborate on his call, if you were a Jew living in the first century, it would be loud and clear that what he was really saying is, I was an enemy to Israel. I was an enemy to my people. I was an enemy to God. I fought this God through my dishonesty. I was content in the name of, of, of 
financial security. I was content to jeopardize everything that a Jew would hold dear. And yet Christ called me. Not only did he call me, but he came as a physician to one who is sick. And he spent time with me. He loved me, and that love was a transforming love. Now, you could argue, because of the fact that only Christ is the physician, the Jewish elders were not, the Pharisees were not, you and I are not, you could argue that perhaps the Pharisees were justified in their expectation that Christ would not socialize with tax collectors. After all, they didn't expect that of themselves. Perhaps we can argue that if they were well, if they were the ones that were whole, they could look at a, with disdain on Christ, who is the great physician, and say, why are you keeping company with such people? They are not worthy of your time, worthy of your energy. But ultimately, what they were missing is this fundamental point, and that is the fourth point there in your bulletin, we are all sick. He concludes his response, Christ concludes his response to the Pharisees with a profound and memorable statement. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then the question is begged, well, who among the crowd was not a sinner? Who among the crowd was well? Who among the crowd was truly righteous? And the answer is only one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who was sinless. He is the only one. He was the only one in the crowd who was well. But they failed to see that they themselves were sick. Christ came to call sinners, helpless sinners, to repentance, to eternal life, and we are all helpless sinners. But with the Pharisees, as with many of us today, we are content too content with clinging to our moral superiority and refusing to see ourselves as sick and in need of healing. So ultimately, the Pharisees are not justified in speaking critically of Christ for eating with sinners because they too were sinners. They too were sick and did not know it. When my wife, Tricia, was pregnant with our first child, she contacted something known as atypical help syndrome. And this is usually deadly. It's usually um, lethal because by the time that symptoms are manifested, it's usually too late. That's why they call it atypical help. But I remember that uh, she went to the OB for her appointment and the OB had a hunch, thank God for her hunch, but she had a hunch that maybe not all was well because of a slightly elevated blood pressure. And so she said, you know, I'm just gonna take the, the safe route and I'm going to admit you to the hospital. We're gonna do a 24 hour urine sample, which means that they have her, um, they take, have her take her urine uh, once an hour for 24 hours straight uh, to monitor not only proteins in urine, but also to see if you are uh, if any enzymes in your liver are elevating. And so, of course, you know, my wife and I, this being our first child, we 
Um, we were somewhat skeptical, but we went ahead and went to the doctor and rode. She was a perfect specimen of health. She felt fine. She looked fine. Uh, and the longer we stayed in the hospital, I think we were there 20 hours of the 24, and, and uh, we're wanting to go home. We don't feel bad. She doesn't feel bad. We're, we're wanting to leave, and the doctor comes in, and um, uh, they said, well, we hate to tell you this, but um, uh, things are very dangerous. You have HELP syndrome. You've definitely uh, showed some of the earliest signs. Your in liver enzymes are increasing. You're starting to show protein in your urine, and um, you are very sick. Now, my wife did not feel sick in the slightest. She felt perfectly normal. She didn't look sick at all. And so we're sitting there on the side of the bed, and the doctor's telling us this, and we're thinking, you got to be kidding. She's well. How in the world could she possibly be sick? And I remember the doctor just saying, even though you don't feel it right now, you're a very sick person. Well, thankfully, after another 24 hours, um, our son William was born, and she was able to pass out of the danger zone into the safety zone. And looking back, we see that God protected her and that God was gracious to us. But the point being is that in our lives, many of us, just like my wife and I when at the birth of our first son, have a hard time seeing that we are sick. We have a hard time seeing that we're not the others, that we're not helpless. Those who are helpless are somebody else. But we are all sick. And so this is the point, ultimately, that Christ is making to the Pharisees, that he's making to Matthew, that he's making to you and I. And that is that Christ came to call sinners because there is no one else to call. Christ came as the great physician to heal the sick because there's no one else on this planet but the sick. And so the sin of the Pharisees was not that they saw Matthew as a traitor, that they saw Matthew as a sinner, because indeed he was. But the sin, the ultimate sin of the Pharisees is that they failed to see themselves as sinners. They failed to see themselves as the sick ones. We compare ourselves to others, those who are around us. By doing so, we say, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not sick. They're the sick ones, not me. But we do not realize our own need for a physician. Earlier, I began reading to you from a quote, a quote from uh, St. Augustine when he was sharing his testimony. And I want to return because he does not leave us to wonder what happened after he refers to the great turmoil in his heart that brought forth a great deluge of tears. He goes on to say, all at once. Now this is when he's in the garden, when he's crying out, when he's struggling with his sickness, when he realizes that he is a sick person in need of a physician. He says, all at once I heard the singing voice of a child in a nearby house. The child was singing, take it and read it, take it and read it. So I hurried back to the place where I was, where I'd put down the book containing Paul's epistles. I seized it and opened it, and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. And the first passage was Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. It says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify 
its desires. He goes on to say, I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. What happened? St. Augustine knew that he was sick and he met the physician and he realized that the only remedy for sick people is to put on Christ. The only remedy for all of us who are helpless is to look to the one who invaded our world, who became man, who dwelled among us. To look to the great physician, the one who invades our home, our intimate space to bring us to him. Why? Because he wants a bride who is committed in covenantal fidelity. Not only is he seeking someone to do so, but he establishes in his perfect life, in his perfect obedience, he makes it possible for you and I to be accepted in the sight of God. And in his death, in our place, his substitutionary death, he allows for our sins to be atoned for and forgiven so that he can bring healing to the sickest of sinners. All of us this morning are in that category. There's no one here who is not sick. No one here who does not need the great physician. We all need a doctor. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus. We thank you that Christ our King has come, the great physician of our soul, that he has come seeking those who are lost, that he has come for those who are sick, and we confess and acknowledge that we are all sick. We are all helpless. And we look to you, O oh God, we look to Jesus Christ the Son for healing, for deliverance, for redemption. We pray, O oh God, that you would open our understanding, that you would help us to see that we are the helpless ones. Reveal to us the depth of our sickness so that we, much like St. Augustine, can struggle and then have the light of your word shine clear into our hearts. We pray all this, O oh God, in the name of Jesus, the great physician of our soul. Amen.